This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In the second chapter of Wild Things, I will detail the case of a woman who traveled halfway around the world to study and live among wild animals. She would become the foremost expert on mountain gorillas and attain celebrity status across the world for her knowledge in this area of science and anthropology. In her quest to save the species, she would make many enemies, some dangerous. In the end, she would give her life for the cause that was her lifelong passion, saving silverback gorillas from extinction. Join me as I dive into Chapter 2 of Wild Things, The Murder of Diane Fossey. It was early morning, two days after Christmas in 1985, when Wayne McGuire heard a knock at his cabin door at the Karasoki Research Center in Rwanda's Volcanoes National Park. Karasoki was located high up in the Virunga Mountains, about 12,000 feet, or 3,600 meters. The research camp was in a remote location, so there weren't many visitors. In fact, McGuire had been alone for several months. The only other person currently living at the camp was Diane Fossey, the researcher and founder of the Karasoki Center, but her own cabin was located clear on the other side of the camp. McGuire answered the knock and saw familiar faces at his door. The unexpected visitors were local men who worked as trackers or performing other odd jobs at the camp. The men had been to Fossey's cabin and said they couldn't find Niira Machabelli. This was a nickname given to Fossey by the locals. It roughly translated to the woman who lives in the forest without a man. McGuire crossed the far edge of the camp where Fossey's cabin was located. It was where she lived, studied, and wrote reports on her interactions with the mountain gorillas she'd come to study over 18 years earlier. The first thing he saw upon approaching the cabin was a hole that had been cut into the siding underneath Fossey's bedroom window. The metal had been pulled back, providing an opening large enough for a person to crawl through. McGuire and the men entered the cabin through the front door and then stopped in their tracks. The place had been ransacked. Items were strewn around the living room, books and papers on the floor, and furniture tipped over. They continued into the second room, Fossey's bedroom. Boxes and furniture blocked the entrance, and moving them aside, McGuire discovered Fossey. She was lying on the floor. Her head and shoulder were still slumped over the side of the bed, as if she'd fallen out of it. At first, McGuire thought she may have suffered a heart attack. He approached her to begin CPR, but as he did so, he saw blood underneath her head. Then he saw her face. It had been sliced open with a blade so deeply that he could see into her skull. He observed that the back of her head had also been struck, not by a blade, but more likely by a blunt object. Diane Fossey had been murdered. The Rwandan police were called, and McGuire also sent for Dr. Philippe Bertrand, a Frenchman who was Diane's friend and who served as the local doctor. Of course, Diane was beyond help, but he would make a cursory examination at the scene to determine the cause and time of death. The U.S. consulate was contacted next. The consulate office was located at the foot of the mountain, and the representative, Kathleen Austin, set out to make the trek up to the research camp. Austin was accompanied by Amy Vetter, 
who had previously worked at the Karasoki Research Center, and could lead the way. By the time they arrived, it was nearing nightfall. The scene that greeted them was eerie. As they walked through the door, they saw the Christmas tree still lit, with a few presents still wrapped underneath. Gifts that Diane had yet to give, and now never would. The body had been moved to the floor. Dr. Bertrand determined that Diane had been dead for several hours before she was found. She had six machete wounds to her face and head. Everyone knew that Diane kept a gun near her bed. It was found lying near her side. A cartridge was lying next to it. The room had also been ransacked. The closet door was open and items were pulled out. Drawers had also been pulled out as if the killer was searching for something. The furniture was not in disarray. It did not appear that much of a struggle had occurred. It looked as if she'd been taken by surprise and did not have much time to react before being struck down. Perhaps she had grabbed for the gun, but it was too late. It had not been recently fired. At first glance, it appeared to be a robbery gone very wrong. However, the next morning, when they could conduct a better search, there was no electricity in the cabin. Investigators found hundreds of dollars in cash, traveler's checks, and jewelry in plain view. Nothing of value had been taken. So the question was, who killed Diane Fossey and why? Diane Fossey was born in San Francisco, California, on January 16, 1932. Her mother, a former fashion model, criticized her tall athletic daughter's hair, her clothes, and her awkwardness around people. Diane was attractive in a fresh-faced, natural way, in contrast to her glamorous mother. Diane preferred to be outdoors, riding horses or taking care of her scores of pets. She apparently wasn't feminine or fashionable enough for her mother's liking. Diane's parents divorced when she was only six. Her father tried to stay in Diane's life, but when her mother married again just a year later, she refused to allow Diane to spend time with him. Soon, Diane lost touch with her father. It would be the first in a series of losses of men in her life. Diane had no siblings, and her stepfather was cold and treated Diane like an outsider in her own home. She was not allowed to sit at the dinner table with her parents, and instead was sent to take her meals in the kitchen with a housekeeper. She didn't have a lot of friends. The few friends she did have throughout her life would say that she was generous, gracious, and kind. But many others found her impatient, aloof, and rude. As a result of the inattention she received at home, and her lack of friendships while young, Diane turned to pets and other animals as a source of comfort and companionship. She began riding horses at the age of six and became a serious equestrian, earning a letter on the riding team at Lowell High School. Diane's love of animals created a desire to become a veterinarian. Her stepfather wanted her to attend college and earn a business degree, but Diane decided to attend UC Davis's pre-veterinary program. However, she did not do well in the required math and science classes, so she soon gave up her dream of becoming a vet and transferred to San Jose State University to earn a degree in occupational therapy. Diane's mother and stepfather were well off financially, but did not agree with her career goals, so they withdrew their financial support. To pay for her education, 
Diane worked her way through college in various jobs, including cashiering at White Front Department Store, as an office clerk, and even in a factory as a machinist. After her college graduation in 1954, Diane applied for a job at a children's hospital in Kentucky. She still loved to ride and said she decided to move to that state because it was horse country and also the home of the famous Kentucky Derby. She was kind and compassionate to the children she worked with. Some were suffering from polio or other crippling illnesses. She became close to one of the hospital's doctor, Dr. Henry, and he invited Diane to board with him and his family on their farm. She accepted the invitation. Diane was thrilled to be among the farm animals, and she also enjoyed being part of a large extended family for the first time in her life. The Henrys took a trip to Africa and invited Diane to join them, but she did not have the funds to travel. When they returned with tales of the land, the people, and especially the animals they encountered on the continent, Diane became very interested in seeing Africa for herself. She began reading about Africa and the explorers and researchers who had lived and worked there. In 1963, Diane decided she could wait no longer and secured an $8,000 loan to make the trip. She was introduced to a guide by actor William Holden and spent the next seven weeks exploring several countries, including Kenya, Rhodesia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. She also traveled to Tanzania to meet famed anthropologist Louis Leakey and his wife Mary at their archaeological site. During her visit, Diane told Dr. Leakey of her plan to visit the Virunga Mountains to see the mountain gorillas. He spoke to her about the fieldwork Jane Goodall was conducting with chimpanzees and told her of the need for long-term field studies of the mountain gorillas that were currently on the verge of extinction. While visiting the Leakey's excavation site, Diane fell into a dig and shattered her ankle. While she was not able to climb the Virunga Mountains due to her injury, she made it as far as the Kabara Meadow. While visiting there, she met Joan and Ellen Root, photographers from Kenya, who were there to photograph the mountain gorillas. Diane asked if she could accompany them on some of their shoots. They generously agreed, and Diane found herself crawling through dense vegetation to silently observe mountain gorillas from about a 50-foot distance. She was immediately fascinated and knew she wanted to return someday to study them. But for now, she needed to return home to Kentucky and to her job. It would take her at least three years to pay off the money she'd borrowed to make the seven-week trip. After returning from Africa, Diane published photographs and articles about her trip and about the magnificent mountain gorillas she had encountered. Dr. Leakey traveled to Louisville, Kentucky, where Diane was living, for a speaking engagement, and he met with Diane to discuss her interest in returning to Africa to study the gorillas. Leakey told Diane he was looking for someone to conduct a long-term field study of the gorillas and wanted to know if she'd be interested in being his gorilla girl. No, really, that's what he called it. It was Leakey's belief that a single woman would be more committed to the work, more persistent, and singularly focused. He also felt a woman would be less of a threat to the locals and get less pushback for her presence. Of course, he also knew he could pay a woman less money than a man. Diane jumped at the opportunity. Dr. Leakey told her that if she was willing, he strongly encouraged her to have her appendix removed before traveling to the remote high altitude of the Virunga Mountains. Diane promptly agreed and scheduled an elective appendectomy. 
six weeks later while recovering from the operation, Diane received a letter from Dr. Leakey. He told her that there hadn't been any real need for her to undergo the surgery, but that he'd suggested it to test her commitment to the project. So in late 1966, Diane traveled to Africa to undertake a solo field study of mountain gorillas in Rwanda. She would be required to live alone in a remote area in a foreign land where she did not speak the language and had no scientific or research training in the field of study. None of this discouraged Diane. She was committed and passionate about conducting the gorilla research study and prepared as much as possible for her new home in the mountains. She studied the local language from a teacher self Swahili book for months. Diane would never become proficient in Swahili or any other languages and would rely on local translators and improvised hand signals to communicate. On her way to Rwanda, she stopped to visit Jane Goodall in Tanzania to get pointers on conducting field research. Goodall showed her how to set up camp, how to begin her field studies, and how to document her research. Diane then continued on to the Congo to set up base camp at Kabara. Six months later, civil war broke out in the Congo. Congolese soldiers rounded up Diane and other research workers and held them at their military base for two weeks. Diane bribed them by promising them her vehicle, as well as some money that was being held for her, she said, at the Traveler's Rest Hotel in Uganda. She was escorted there by soldiers, who were promptly arrested after Diane entered the building under the ruse of retrieving the money and reported them to police. Diane would not speak of what she underwent while held at the base but her attitude and demeanor changed after her return. She became angry and impatient with her African employees and began to treat them harshly. Later, she would confide to a friend that she had been sexually abused at the camp by soldiers and was now distrustful of Africans. In 1967, Diane set up her research camp on the Rwanda side of the Virunga Mountains. Her new base was located between Mounts Karasimbi and Vaisoki, she combined the two names to dub the new research facility Karasoki. Diane always had helpers at the camp. The most important of those she employed to work with her were her trackers. Local Bahutu men were hired to help with the duties in the camp, as well as to help track the mountain gorillas. Immediately, there were challenges, because Diane had learned only rudimentary Swahili, and the Rwandan staff members spoke only Kinyarwanda. Since Diane had such difficulty learning new languages, the locals learned some Swahili in order to communicate with their employer. Camp was set up, and Diane and her staff lived in canvas tents for two years before more permanent structures were built out of wood and tin. Once basic living necessities were established in the camp, Diane's first order of business was to spend time in the field working to make contact with the mountain gorillas. She set out each day to hike high up the slopes of the mountain to track down the gorilla groups who made it their home. Taking a waterproof tablet, pencils, and a camera, Diane spent every day observing the gorillas in their natural habitat. Over months, they became accustomed to her presence. She remained silent, merely observing and taking notes. Each night, she would return to the camp to type up notes on the observations of that day. She began to distinguish the gorillas into groups of family units. She gave names to those she observed the most frequently. One mature male gorilla reminded her of one of her uncles, so she called him Uncle Bert. 
Diane gradually became accepted by the gorillas due to her frequent presence and her imitation of their behaviors. Unlike Jane Goodall, who bribed her chimpanzees with bananas in order to gain proximity, Diane decided that the best way to get closer to the mountain gorillas without altering their habits was to adjust her own behavior to mimic theirs. She crawled on all fours instead of standing upright and copied the sounds they made. She was able to distinguish different sounds made by the gorillas to express fright, pleasure, aggression, contentment, and more. In time, Diane began to see that the gorillas structured their lives around social units she called groups or family groups. She observed that most gorilla groups were typically made up of one silverback gorilla, the dominant mature male of the group, three to four mature females, who are usually bonded to the dominant silverback for life, a few younger males not yet sexually mature, and several very young gorillas from infants to young adolescents. As Diane became accepted by a few of these groups, she began to bond with them, perhaps the way she never had with her own family. She grew very attached and fiercely protective of the gorillas. The Batwa people of Rwanda have always been hunter-gatherers. They do not farm like some of the other ethnic groups in Rwanda. Their primary source of income comes from hunting forest antelope, using snares to catch their prey. The Virunga National Park was established in 1925 by King Albert I of Belgium, primarily to protect the mountain gorillas living there from poachers. For the first 35 years of its existence, it did just that, driving poaching activity down significantly. However, after the state won independence in 1960, becoming the Democratic Republic of the Congo, conditions in the state and the park deteriorated. It was into this environment that Diane Fossey found herself when she arrived in 1966. Poaching had risen over the first half of the 1960s, and the gorillas became increasingly endangered. The Botwa hunters were now considered illegal poachers, but they continued to set snare traps throughout the park. Gorillas would sometimes get a hand or foot caught in them, resulting in the loss of a limb or even death after the wounds became infected. As well, poachers also came looking for baby gorillas to kidnap and sell to zoos and private collectors. Adult gorillas would fight to the death to keep one of their young from being taken. When this situation occurred, a dozen or more adult gorillas might be killed in order for the poacher to collect one baby gorilla. Diane became a fierce advocate for the preservation of the mountain gorilla. While she was living at Karasoki, the gorilla population dwindled to about 250. She could not bear the thought that these beautiful and gentle animals might become extinct and vowed to do everything in her power to save them. Life was far from easy at Karasoki. The camp was located 10,000 feet, or 16,000 kilometers, up through dense foliage. To reach it, guides had to hack through the forest with machetes to clear a path. The climate was tropical, and it rained often, and when it was not raining, the mountains were covered with a thick mist. The few roads up the slopes to Karasoki were unpaved, narrow, steep, and muddy. Cabins were constructed of wood and corrugated metal to replace the canvas tents, but there was no electricity and only kerosene lamps for light. There was also no running water. Diane and the locals who she hired as assistants, trackers, and housekeepers had to collect firewood and water each day. They primarily ate rations out of tin cans, trekked in from town on a regular basis, or whatever foods they could harvest from nearby plants and trees. 
Their clothes and possessions were constantly wet. Diane would hang up her drenched clothing every day over a fire after spending the day outside in the rain and mist observing the gorillas. For some time, she could only observe them through binoculars at a distance. After a month, she was able to get within 30 to 60 feet of the gorillas. With patience over time, she was able to make close contact and gain acceptance into some of the gorilla groups. Student assistants, student researchers, and others came and went to Karasoki. Some left due to illness, injury, or because they just couldn't handle the conditions. Besides the climate and lack of comfort, there was also the isolation and loneliness. While Diane would write in her journal that she never felt lonely when she could just open up her cabin door and be greeted by the sights and sounds of so many different types of magnificent animals, many others didn't share her singular focus on gorillas and wildlife. Diane, it seemed, did not need much in the way of human companionship. In fact, people seemed to frustrate her and make her angry. She saw the students as lazy, not dedicated, and soft. She was harsh with the other researchers and would berate them or give them the cold shoulder when she was angry. She drove away many with her criticism and aloofness. For a short time, Diane was happy and life at Karasoki was more calm and peaceful. This began in early 1969, when Bob Campbell arrived at the camp. Alan Root had been Diane's photographer at Karasoki, but in 1969, he was bitten by a snake and became ill. He had to return home for treatment and to recover. Another man was sent to Karasoki to take his place. Bob Campbell was a photographer for National Geographic, and he quickly settled into the camp. At first, Diane didn't like him, but she was often wary of new people, especially men. However, Around this time, she was going through a particularly difficult period, and Bob was a great help to her. Diane had been at Karasoki for two years and believed she was working in tandem with the state officials to improve conservation efforts in the park, especially those of the mountain gorillas. However, in 1969, she would find that she had been very wrong. A Rwandan official from the Department of Conservation arrived, and Diane took this to mean that the state was planning to support her in her anti-poaching efforts. Instead, she was told that a young gorilla had been captured and was slated to be sent to a German zoo. The gorilla was ill, and they needed her to help nurse it to health before they could transport it. Diane was appalled, but went with the official in order to see what condition the young gorilla was in and to try to help it if possible. When she arrived, she found the four-year-old female gorilla in desperate straits, with injuries and cuts where she had been restrained, weak from diarrhea and an improper diet, and very frightened. She told the officials that she would take her to the research center to care for her. Of course, she never planned to return the young gorilla to her captors. She made the arduous journey back to camp with the sick gorilla. She named her Coco, and while Coco almost didn't survive, little by little, Diane nursed her back to health. Within weeks, she was beginning to thrive. At about that same time, the conservator called again, stating that they had another baby gorilla in need of help. Diane suspected that both gorillas had been kidnapped at the same time, and they were just waiting to see if the first one would die, or if it was worth their while to turn over the second sick gorilla. This gorilla, about the same age, but not from the same group as Coco, was also brought to camp to be nursed by Diane. She named her Pucker. 
Bob Campbell arrived during the time that Diane was caring for the two juvenile gorillas. But within two months of their arrival, the state wanted Diane to return the gorillas so they could be transported, as promised, to the zoo in Cologne, Germany. Diane put them off as long as she could, until the conservator director himself made the journey to Karasoki to demand that they be returned. Now, she flatly refused. He became angry and told her that if she did not, he would have no choice but to obtain two more young gorillas from one of the mountain gorilla groups. He did not want to be embarrassed by telling German officials that he could not deliver on his promise. As well, Diane suspected that money had exchanged hands. Now Diane had a heartbreaking decision to make. She did not want to turn over the two young gorillas. Who knows if they would survive the trip or how they would be treated. But she also knew if poachers went in to kidnap two more youngsters, that many adult gorillas would be killed in the process. So the day came when she could hold off the government officials no longer. She had to turn over Coco and Pucker to be sent to a foreign zoo. Her heart was breaking at the unfair situation. She thought she was in Rwanda to help save the gorillas from extinction, and she was tasked with preparing them to live in captivity. She was furious and heartsick. Bob Campbell was there through it all. When the officials came in a show of force to the camp, armed guards in tow, she had no choice but to say goodbye to Coco and Pucker and watch as they were carried away from their homeland. Bob and Diane grew close through this ordeal. They began a romantic relationship. Diane's last relationship ended when she returned to Africa. After she'd returned from her safari in 1966, she became engaged to a man who was a student at Notre Dame. After that relationship ended, she had thrown herself into her work and her life with the gorillas. Now Bob Campbell was in her life, and Diane's domestic side emerged. She wrote of making the cabin more homey with candles and flowers, and trying to prepare more home-cooked meals. Every day, she and Bob would spend on the mountain with the gorillas, she observing and taking notes, and he photographing Diane and the gorillas. In the photos, Diane looks happy, glowing, and in her element. But there was a sad undercurrent to their relationship. Bob was married. While Diane may have hoped that he would make a decision to leave his marriage and make their relationship permanent, it was not to be. In 1972, Bob Campbell left Karasoki for good. Diane was crushed. From here on, her time in Karasoki would be made up of two parts— her increased commitment and bonding to the mountain gorillas, and her frequent headbutting and trouble with all others. Diane Fossey was increasingly frustrated and stressed at Karasoki, this was clear. In 1972, she only seemed to be happy at one place, among the gorillas. At camp, she was demanding of her research assistants, impatient with camp workers, and downright abusive to the African staff, according to residents of Karasoki at that time. She was also at war with the poachers. She began a campaign of what she called active conservation. She fought fire with fire by cutting poacher snares in the field and even confronting the poachers themselves when she encountered them. The antelope poachers were not, by most accounts, dangerous or violent. Diane was often combative when dealing with the locals, which created a problem for park rangers and local police. There were more frequent skirmishes on the mountain, with Diane as the instigator. 
Park rangers were employed to keep the gorillas and other animals safe from poachers. But Diane did not trust them and often made their job more difficult due to her aggressive tactics and fights with villagers. She also got into frequent arguments with the student researchers at Karasoki. One thing that really irked Diane, it seemed, was when her young assistants began pairing up as couples. This was natural, as many of the students were young and single, and they were in an isolated area, without many others around for companionship. But as Diane was now alone again, after Bob Campbell's departure, seeing these happy couples must have rubbed salt in the wound. She became short with them, gave them the most boring and arduous tasks, and was very critical of their work. Another reason she was so short with the student researchers, some believe, was because she was intimidated by them. She wrote in her journal that she felt stalled in her research due to her lack of scientific academic training. The young researchers who came to Karasoki were trained in research techniques, but Diane, instead of endeavoring to learn from them, called them lazy and incompetent. Most of the students came to Karasoki to conduct research, but Diane's priority had become her anti-poaching efforts, something the students felt was inappropriate for them to become involved in. The situation became more tense by the day. In 1973, Diane decided to return to college to earn a Ph.D. in primatology and ethnology. She attended Darwin College in Cambridge, England. She was able to study with some of the world's most brilliant primatologists. Her doctoral advisor was Robert Hind, who had been Jane Goodall's supervisor. For the next few years, she divided her time between Karasoki and Cambridge. Diane returned to Africa for good by the mid-1970s. She continued her efforts in anti-poaching and active conservation, becoming more aggressive in her techniques. She had little patience for anyone who didn't agree with her ideals or her methods, and it became problematic and dangerous. In addition to cutting poachers' snares and traps, she also began terrorizing them. She was aware that the Batwa hunters were very superstitious and believed in the power of black magic. She would sneak into their villages at night, wearing Halloween masks, and pretend to be a demon to scare them out of their wits. She would also bring bundles of stinging nettles that she would whip them with. She forced them to turn over their weapons, spears, bows, and arrows. Not only did she abuse and terrorize the hunters, but she also humiliated them in public. She was creating very bad blood for herself personally with these techniques. Kelly Stewart, a student researcher who was working at Karasoki at the time, and who was also the daughter of the American actor, Jimmy Stewart, says that Diane's aggressive behavior made things more difficult for the researchers, dangerous for herself, and even more dangerous for the gorillas. I think she was doing more harm than good, Stewart would later tell Vanity Fair. Diane went out to the gorillas because she loved them, but she ended up with more than she bargained for. She wasn't planning on having to organize and work with and fight with people. She was no good as a scientific mentor, but she couldn't hand over control. She couldn't take the back seat. She viewed herself as a warrior, fighting the enemy who was out to get her. Then, as 1977 dawned, Diane received her biggest blow, and one she may have never recovered from. One of her most beloved friends, a young mountain gorilla named Digit, was brutally killed by poachers. Just a warning, I will be telling you about the death of an animal next. While I don't need to go into graphic detail, it is a bit disturbing. It's a detail I have to share 
since it was such an important event in the life of Diane Fossey. If you feel it will disturb you, skip ahead to the next musical break. By December 31, 1977, Diane had been living amongst the mountain gorillas for 11 years. For almost the entirety of those 11 years, she was bonded to a male gorilla she named Digit because of a crooked finger he possessed that had probably been broken early in his life. Diane met the orphan gorilla soon after arriving at camp. He was young and curious enough about Diane to allow her close proximity. She, in turn, showed him special attention. Soon, he adopted Diane as a mother figure, and their relationship began. He was one of the first gorillas who let her observe him up close. Diane always considered him one of her favorites and followed the details of his life closely. By 1977, Digit had become an adult and found a mate. His mate was pregnant with Digit's first child. On New Year's Eve day, Digit and his group, including his mate Simba, were foraging for food on the forest floor when they encountered a group of poachers. These poachers were most likely antelope hunters and not gorilla hunters, according to Diane's later account. Digit and his group just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Digit, wanting to protect his family group and his mate, fought the poachers, giving the rest of the gorillas time to make their escape. In the end, Digit was attacked and killed, receiving five spear wounds before succumbing to his injuries. But it was what they did to the gorilla after his death that would cause the most outrage. Perhaps knowing that gorilla trophies were a valuable commodity, the poachers proceeded to hack off Digit's head and hands, taking them away and leaving his mutilated corpse behind. Ian Redman, one of the researchers, along with a tracking group, discovered Digit's body. They brought Diane to the body the following day. As angry as Diane had been with poachers in the park, they could only imagine that her reaction would be swift and furious. But they were surprised to see that Diane, upon seeing her beloved Digit's body, simply leaned over and stroked his fur, not saying a word. Redmond would say that, in that moment, Diane was broken, the light extinguished from her eyes. Diane must have wondered what the point of her work had been. Why had she given up her whole life to research and try to help this species when it seemed she was powerless to stop her beloved gorillas from being attacked, stolen, and murdered? Diane, some said, fell into a depression and her drinking increased. But first, she and the trackers wanted someone to answer for Digit's death. They discovered that six poachers had been in the area that day, setting antelope traps. Six days after they found Digit's body, a poacher was captured, still wearing a shirt stained with the gorilla's blood. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of poaching and sent to prison. Two others were captured within a week. The other three escaped into the forest, but park rangers knew their identities. Diane and Ian Redman decided to publicize the circumstances around Digit's demise, hoping it would bring awareness to their anti-poaching efforts. News reports around the world told the sad tale, and donations poured in. Fossey began an organization called the Digit Fund to support active conservation of gorillas and to expand anti-poacher foot patrols in the park. With these funds, she could hire and train workers to patrol the park, cut down trap lines, and confiscate illegal poacher weapons. By 1979, the Digit Fund had hired and trained four African staffers. In four months, 
they had destroyed almost 1,000 poachers' traps in the vicinity around Karasoki. Still, Diane was increasingly morose and spent more time secluded in her cabin away from people and even the gorillas. While she used to go out to the forest every day to spend time in the field, by the late 1970s, she only traveled up the slope six times in an 18-month period. Usually, these treks were only made when important visitors came to Karasoki, journalists, film crews, or big donors to gorilla conservation. She was also suffering from emphysema. Diane had become a heavy smoker, and it took a toll on her health. Some said she often drank herself into a stupor in the evenings and didn't leave her cabin during the day, sleeping off her hangover. Others say this is an exaggeration. In any case, she did not take as active a role with the gorillas. Diane herself would write that after Digit's death, she, quote, came to live within an insulated part of myself, unquote. Soon after his death, she went out to check on his group and found herself still looking for him, unable to accept that he was gone. She wrote in her book, Gorillas in the Mist, quote, the gorillas still allowed me to share their proximity as before. This was a privilege that I felt I no longer deserved, end quote. Six months after Digit's death, Two other gorillas, the elder male she called Uncle Bert, and a younger gorilla called Macho, were also killed by poachers. The poachers were caught and sent to prison. And this news made headlines around the world. More money came flooding in, and additional organizations were founded, dedicated to saving the mountain gorillas. Diane disagreed with other conservation programs, which sought to bring tourists into the park and educate Rwandans about the gorillas to increase their interest in anti-poaching efforts. She wanted to focus solely on combating the poachers and prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law. Diane also vehemently opposed the park's efforts towards increasing tourism. She had seen how tourist programs were run in Zaire's National Park. Large groups of tourists, led by local guides, cut through the forest without regard to the vegetation or gorilla habitats. The guides in those parks, she said, would taunt the gorillas into showing themselves, which caused the animals distress. Diane vowed not to let this happen in the Virungas. However, she did not try and work with the park officials or discover their plans. She simply began by opposing tourism in the media, calling it an invasion. Her attacks against poachers continued and escalated in intensity. She knew that the poachers feared her and believed she was a witch. When rumors spread that she was casting spells to harm them or that she'd hired a sorcerer to provide her with powerful poisons to use against them, she allowed these stories to go unchecked. At one point, she came across a 10-year-old boy while on anti-poacher patrol. She recognized him as the son of one of the lead poachers, a man named Munya Rikiko. She caught the boy and took him back to her camp, planning to use him as a bargaining chip to make the poachers agree to stay out of the area. Of the kidnapped boy, Diane would write, the hostage enjoyed his two-day stay at camp, he served as an appealing mediator when he was exchanged for Manurikiko's promise that Vaisoki slopes were to be considered sacrosanct against further trap settings or hunting. Of course, others were afraid that Diane was creating a very dangerous situation by taking on the poachers this way. They warned her to dial back her aggression, but she just responded, I am not afraid of them and I am well armed. Diane also began retaliating against tourists. When a group of Dutch tourists arrived in the park without permission and hiked up to Karasoki, Diane fired several shots over their heads as a warning. 
The tourists reported her to the authorities, and the park director threatened to have her arrested. Bill Weber arrived at Karasoki in 1978 with his partner Amy Vetter to head the conservation group, the Mountain Gorilla Project. He observed how things were deteriorating at the camp, in large part due to Diane's increasingly aggressive tactics. He discovered that the only gorillas who had been killed in the area were all members of Diane's study groups. He wondered if the animals were being singled out because of Diane's extreme views and her persecution of the poachers. Weber wrote a letter with these findings and addressed it to the National Geographic Society, but he held off on sending it. If he'd done so, it could have spelled disaster for Diane, as National Geographic was one of her main backers. Diane got wind of the letter and began to retaliate against Bill Weber and Amy Vetter for what she perceived as a conspiracy they were cooking up to get rid of her. She broke into their cabins to read their mail and spied on their conversations. Weber told the American ambassador, Frank Krigler, that he would send the letter if Krigler didn't find a way to get Diane out of the country. At the same time, Krigler was receiving pressure from the Rwandan government, who also wanted her to leave. He worked for months to find a place where Diane could go to complete her book detailing her research, a book that had been promised and was long overdue. After approaching several academic institutions, Cornell University, located in Ithaca, New York, offered Diane a visiting associate professorship. She left for New York in 1980. In America, Diane wrote, taught, and went on a speaking tour. She was featured on many talk shows and news programs. Diane Fossey became a minor celebrity as a woman who lived with gorillas. She completed her book, and Gorillas in the Mist was published in 1983. That same year, Diane returned to Rwanda. She'd missed her life at Karasoki terribly. She had not been particularly successful relating to people, either her students or the public, while in America. She had been in the forest, isolated and away from civilization, too long. She no longer felt comfortable in America, if she ever truly had. She felt more at home and happy living among the gorillas. However, Diane, at only 51 years old, was not in good health. If you believe some accounts, her drinking had taken a toll on her. She was also debilitated by emphysema and was unable to hike up the slopes to spend time with her beloved animals. So when she returned to Karasoki, she was willing to start fresh and work in cooperation with the other researchers. She also had no choice, as her health required others' help to navigate day-to-day life in Africa. She could no longer do it alone. In the summer of 1985, Ph.D. research assistant Wayne McGuire arrived at Karasoki. McGuire had been applying to be a research assistant at Karasoki for nearly two years and was finally selected. He was originally supposed to make the trip along with his girlfriend, who was also a primatologist, but the relationship ended soon before he was to leave for Africa, so he made the trip alone. McGuire became Diane's eyes and ears in the field. He observed the gorillas on the slopes each day, as Diane had once done. He would return each evening with his notes to share with Diane. By this time, she was dependent on an oxygen tank due to her worsening emphysema. At the end of the evening, he would return to his own cabin, located about 50 yards away from Diane's, on the other side of the camp. McGuire considered his work with Diane Fossey a, quote, dream come true. But soon, 
the dream would become a nightmare, and he would be caught in the middle. Christmas in Karasoki was not elaborate, but Diane tried to make it festive. Christmas 1985 was no exception. Diane decorated a small Christmas tree in her cabin and wrapped up a few gifts. On Christmas Day, she hosted a dinner for McGuire, some of her favorite trackers, and other employees at the camp. She was also celebrating because, just days before, her tourist visa had been renewed. Diane had to continually apply for an extended visa with Rwanda's tourist board. The process was somewhat trying, in that she had to travel all the way down the mountain every two months to apply in person for the extension. After all the trouble between her and the government officials began, she had been threatened with denial of her application. But unexpectedly, a few days before Christmas, not only was her visa renewed, she was granted a residence visa, which was good for a minimum of two years and a maximum of life. So all was calm and peaceful in the camp in the days leading up to and after Christmas. Then came the morning of December 27th, when Wayne McGuire was awoken by the trackers and discovered Diane murdered in her cabin. The gun found on the floor next to Diane's body had not been fired. In fact, the clip lying next to it was the wrong type for the gun. It was theorized that Diane may have heard an intruder and reached for her gun that was always near her bed. However, Diane had been having trouble with her eyesight and may have mistakenly grabbed the wrong clip. It would not have fit into the gun, losing her the only chance she may have had to fight off her attacker or attackers. Hair was found gripped in both of Diane's hands. Kathleen Austin, from the U.S. consulate in Rwanda, and one of the first on the scene, had the presence of mind to remove some of the hair from her hands and place it in envelopes as evidence. The Rwandan police bungled the investigation from the start, with many people coming and going from inside the cabin, contaminating the crime scene. Austin saw this and wanted to make sure that some evidence would be collected to be sent for analysis. Austin divided the hair samples. Some were given to the U.S. Embassy, who then sent them on to the FBI for testing while the others were given to the Rwandan police authorities, who then sent them to a lab in Paris. Austin herself kept some of the hair samples, just in case the others were lost or destroyed. All of Diane's valuables, including money, guns, and jewelry, were found in her cabin, some in plain sight. It did not look like Diane had been targeted for robbery. As well, there was the question of the hole cut in the wall of the cabin. It was believed that if the attackers had cut into the metal before gaining entry, Diane surely would have heard them. Why, then, was she still found lying halfway on her bed? Some speculated that perhaps she was passed out in a deep stupor due to alcohol consumption or sleeping medication. Wayne McGuire reported that Diane had told him she'd been suffering for insomnia for the last two weeks. Might she have taken something to help her sleep that made her too groggy to react? But toxicology tests were never performed on the body, since Dr. Bertrand reported that the cause of death was obvious. So, unfortunately, whether she was under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or even if she'd been poisoned, a more frequent cause of murder among certain local tribes, would never be known. It was possible that the hole cut in the side of the cabin was staged to look 
as if an intruder had gained access that way. Some said that Diane never locked her cabin door, but that is unverified. Others would report that Diane had become more fearful of retaliation from her many perceived enemies, poachers, government officials, etc., and had taken to locking the cabin up tight each night. Then there was a debate about how Diane had died. While she had been struck several times with a machete, not much blood was found near her body. This seemed odd, so some wondered if she had been poisoned or strangled first, and then had been struck with a machete post-mortem. It was also possible that she had died as a result of a blunt instrument striking her in the head first, before the machete blows. As the heart would no longer be pumping, far less blood would be found at the crime scene, if this was the case. Two sets of footprints were found near the cabin. This evidence suggested that poachers may have been responsible for the murder. They often went barefoot, while the visiting researchers and other staff members all wore shoes. On December 31, 1985, Diane was laid to rest on the slopes of the Verisoki Mountain. Digit had been killed exactly eight years earlier. Diane's grave was placed next to his and alongside her other beloved gorillas. Her marker read, Niaira Machabelli, Diane Fossey, 1932-1985. No one loved gorillas more. Rest in peace, dear friend, eternally protected in the sacred ground, for you are at home where you belong. Of course, rumors swirled about who was responsible for the murder of the gorilla lady. Poachers were immediately suspected in her death. They'd had a long-standing feud with Diane, and her anti-poaching efforts had cost them hunting grounds and income. As well, some of them had been physically assaulted by Diane, had their property confiscated, and had been humiliated in public by her. At least one poacher's child had been kidnapped, and he, more than anyone, hated Diane Fossey. Some even posited that Rwanda's director of tourism had Diane killed for her opposition to making Karasoki into a tourist destination. Her anti-tourism efforts, behavior towards visitors, and statements to the media had made his job difficult and caused him to lose funding. Diane saw the director as an enemy, believing that he was trying to have her thrown out of Karasoki so that he could take it over and create a money-making venture. Soon after Diane's funeral, Five of her own trackers were arrested and imprisoned. There they stayed for months without charges being filed. The only evidence against them was that the machete used to kill Diane was found in the cabin and was identified as originating from the camp. No fingerprint evidence could be found since so many people had handled it at the crime scene. Those who lived and worked at Karasoki were outraged that these men had been singled out. They had no history of violence, no animosity towards Diane, and in fact, had been her most loyal and trusted helpers during her time there. Other evidence suggested that the attacker was not African. The hair found clutched in Diane's hands were said to be from a Caucasian person. In addition, it was brown in color, not unlike Diane's own hair. It was speculated that when Diane felt the first blow, she may have grabbed her head to instinctively protect it from another strike, and in the process, pulled out her own hair. Investigators were still waiting for lab results on the hair samples. On January 14th, an inventory was taken of Diane's property, and a copy of a letter she'd written was found. The letter, dated November 24th, a month before her murder, was addressed to Ian Redman, a former researcher at Karasoki who'd remained friends with Diane. 
Redmond reported that he had not received the original copy of the letter and only the carbon copy was found among her possessions. Had it been intercepted or was it simply lost in the mail? No one knew. In the letter, Diane writes of the capture of a poacher on November 11th. She writes, He is one of the last of the old-timers. I hopefully doubt that he will survive the Rungari prison. He is also a smuggler, gold, between Zaire and Rwanda. I gently, gently is in italics, perhaps this is sarcasm, I gently examined his clothing to find a letter between him and his dealer in Wallakele setting up appointment places for gold deliveries. Oddly, in the letter, the gold smuggling is given short attention. Diane makes more of the fact that she took a few small bundles from the poacher's pockets. These small pouches, called sunu, are filled with bits of items like twigs, leaves, and hair, and are considered by the villagers to be instruments of black magic. They can be used to ward off enemies and even poison them, they believe. Diane reports in the letter that the poacher was very upset when she confiscated his sunu packets. But could it be more likely that the letter she took from him, a letter stating names and places connected with the gold smuggling operation, was the real reason for his distress, and a much more dangerous item for Diane to confiscate? Ian Redmond made a photocopy of the letter and handed it over to investigators. The question remains, was Diane's cabin tossed looking for that letter? Did they find the unmailed original copy of the letter addressed to Ian Redmond and take it with them? But it's unlikely that any of the poachers could read a letter written in English, and the cabin might have been ransacked simply to further stage the crime scene. If they were actually looking for anything, or if they found and took anything from the cabin, remains a mystery. Wayne McGuire stayed on at Karasoki to take over the management of the research center after Diane's death. Diane's cabin had been sealed off by investigators. In early February, Wayne McGuire saw the shadow of a figure inside the cabin and went to investigate. He let himself in and found no one, but a park guard caught him inside the cabin and questioned him as to why he had entered the off-limits area. McGuire tried to explain, but the guard started to accuse him of breaking into the cabin to steal Fossey's, quote, precious documents. A few days later, McGuire was called in for questioning by police. They accused him of killing Diane and continued to use the phrase, precious documents. Their theory was that Fossey had been working on a follow-up to her very successful book, Gorillas in the Mist, and McGuire had killed her in order to steal it. Of course, those who understood the nature of Diane's academic research knew it was a ludicrous idea that McGuire could pass off her research as his own. McGuire reports that he felt very intimidated and threatened by his interrogators and was coerced into signing a confession of sorts. They then released him back to camp. However, they also accused one of Diane's longtime trackers, a man named Relicana, of being McGuire's accomplice. He was also rounded up, and after his interrogation, he was thrown into Rungari prison. In March, the U.S. State Department contacted the U.S. Embassy in Rwanda for an update on the progress in the Fosse murder case. The Rwandan police were feeling pressure to find Fosse's killer. The hair samples had come back from the FBI lab in February, with results indicating that they could not be ruled out as Diane Fosse's own hair. But the lab report of the testing done by the Paris lab for Rwandan authorities stated the hair was of Caucasian origin and were not those of Diane Fosse. 
the only other Caucasian present at the camp at the time of Diane's murder, was Wayne McGuire. Why the two different results? Over time, the validity of hair samples for identification has been debunked as not an accurate scientific measurement, especially to identify suspects in a criminal case. Even so, neither lab could definitively tie the hair samples back to McGuire, as no samples of his hair had ever been collected or sent for comparison. The Rwandan authorities accused McGuire and Relicana of conspiring to murder Diane Fossey. But Wayne McGuire had never met Relicana, nor could he speak his language. Because of the language barrier, it would have been very difficult to conspire together to do anything. At this point, the American embassy decided to help McGuire leave the country. Three weeks later, he was formally charged by Rwandan police with Diane's murder. Relicana, who was still locked up in prison, was also formally charged. On September 29th, the U.S. State Department received word that Relicana was dead. Prison officials reported that he hanged himself in his jail cell. None of his family members believed it and accused the government and prison officials of having him murdered. But as far as the Rwandan government was concerned, the case was closed on Diane Fossey's murder. Relicana was dead, and Wayne McGuire was a fugitive. On December 11th, he was tried in absentia and convicted of murder. The trial lasted all of 30 minutes. There was no defense attorney present, no witnesses testified, and no evidence was presented. The sentence handed down for McGuire was death. In 1988, the movie version of Diane Fossey's book, Gorillas in the Mist, was released. Starring Sigourney Weaver as Diane Fossey, it became an instant hit. It was nominated for five Oscars. Weaver won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Motion Picture. The fact that the book had been such a success and had been slated to be made into an American movie brings us to the last theory of who may have killed Diane Fossey. Frank Krigler, the former American ambassador to Rwanda, spoke with author Nicholas Gordon in the early 1990s. He shared some thoughts about the resident visa Diane had been granted by the Rwandan tourist office just 10 days before her murder. Diane had never been granted a visa for longer than three months, he explained. This was done deliberately, as it allowed the Rwandan government to keep closer tabs on her and revoke her visa quickly if any serious issues were to arise. The fact that she was then granted a possible lifetime visa was curious. Diane herself wrote that the head of Rwanda's Secret Service Department had pulled strings in order to get the resident visa approved. She had apparently had a meeting with him not long before her death, something she had never done in the 18 years she had been in the country. Perhaps having returned from America and realizing her home country held nothing for her anymore, Diane decided she needed to be sure that she'd be allowed to stay in Africa indefinitely. She knew that the National Park officials, the Tourist Board, and other conservation organizations all wanted her gone. Did she then meet with the Secret Service director to present her bargaining chip? Did she threaten to reveal secrets unless she was granted a long-term visa? Secrets that had to do with park authorities allowing guerrilla poaching to go unchecked, or gold smugglers using the park grounds as a convenient route or meeting area? Diane had the attention of the world. Her book was a success, and she was in contract to have a feature film made in the year before her death. The public was beginning to rally around the conservation efforts Diane championed. This was what she had fought for all along. 
It would not be difficult, she told friends, for her to inform the world about what was happening in Rwanda, how the guerrillas weren't being protected, but instead were being slaughtered. That would certainly cast a bad light on the government. Yes, Diane did have a powerful platform through Hollywood and the media to share information about things that the African government might not want revealed. It was also possible that she communicated with others besides Ian Redman about the gold smuggling being coordinated through the country. Any and all of these things could have earned Diane very powerful enemies, enemies who could easily pay off assassins to take her out if she became a threat. Perhaps they counted on the fact that she would be denied permission to stay in Rwanda, and after it was discovered that she'd been granted an extended visa, her enemies decided to act. If so, it is tragic and sad that 10 days after receiving permission to stay in the country she loved, she was so brutally murdered in the only place she had ever considered home. Rwanda, of course, has gone through much political upheaval over the years, including a civil war that broke out in 1994 that led to the genocidal mass slaughter of Tutsis by members of the Hutu majority. Over 800,000 people were killed, most by machete. A period of instability lasted for a decade, and over 5 million Congolese died in the fighting. The court where Diane's alleged killers were tried, burned down, and all the documents related to the case were destroyed. Wayne McGuire lives in the United States and began working in the mental health field, counseling trauma survivors. He had to give up his dream of being a primatologist, as he could never return to Africa to complete his research. The Karasoki Research Center is still in existence. The descendants of the same family groups that Diane began studying in 1967 are still being tracked. It is the longest field research study ever conducted. The gorilla population, which had numbered less than 250 during Diane's time, has now reached nearly 1,000. While still considered an endangered species, there is hope that the mountain gorilla population will continue to grow and thrive. Sigourney Weaver, who played Diane Fossey in Gorillas in the Mist, now serves as honorary chair for what used to be called the Digit Fund and has now been renamed the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International. She recently narrated the four-part documentary series for National Geographic titled Diane Fossey, Secrets in the Mist. In this last portion of the story, I will share my own viewpoint on what may have contributed to Diane Fossey's tragic death. I don't often share an opinion, but this time I decided to do so. If you want, you can skip it and not miss any part of the story. This is simply my own response to this case. Diane Fossey went to the Congo to do a good work. That I believe 100%. She felt the need to protect the mountain gorilla population and save them from extinction. And this, I believe, she began to accomplish. If nothing else, she cast a light on the problem and rallied many people and organizations to donate time, money, and assets to work for this cause. Diane felt a kinship with the gorillas she studied and lived among. It is a basic instinct of most humans and animals to be part of a family, a community. And Diane may have felt she received this, perhaps for the very first time when she bonded with the gorillas. In her young life, she had been abandoned and betrayed by people, starting with her parents and then her romantic partners. So later, her sole focus and love was for her gorilla family. 
Since her entire goal for her work in Africa was dedicated to helping the guerrillas, she didn't take much time to prepare herself for the people she would encounter. She knew very little, it seems, about the history or culture of the Congo. She didn't even find out before landing in Rwanda that the predominant languages spoken in that region were Kinyarwanda and French. Swahili was not widely spoken or understood there, and it was the only language she had learned a little of in preparation for her trip. The locals then learned some Swahili in order to be able to communicate with the American. They adapted to Diane, their visitor, instead of the other way around. In her journals, she is also dismissive and belittling of the local customs, beliefs, and superstitions. She came across as aggressive and disrespectful to government officials, village elders, and leaders. To be fair, she felt that she needed to show up this way in order to be heard and taken seriously since she was a woman. So she learned to cause a fuss to get her way. But without educating herself about the people whose homeland she was a visitor to, she came across as bullying and disrespectful. I don't know if she knew much about the history of the Congo. I only have a basic outline of the region myself. Although I did read the amazing book, King Leopold's Ghost, about the history of colonial Africa, that goes into detail about King Leopold II's privatization of the Congo, the pillaging of its natural resources, and enslavement and mass killing of its people. It's a really great book that stayed with me for a long time. I read it many years ago, and I highly recommend it if you're interested in this portion of the history of Africa. What I do know is that the people of the Congo have undergone generations of subjugation due to colonialism, where people from foreign lands came and exploited the country's natural resources and people. This led to rebellions and unrest, as you can imagine. The people would then fight to democratize the country, and foreign interests would shore up the opposition with money and arms. The fighting continued and many lost their lives. This is just a thumbnail sketch of a very long history, of course, and it still continues today. After the horrific genocide that began in 1994, a tentative peace agreement was finally reached in 2003, and democratic elections were held for the first time in 40 years in 2006. Then in 2010, oil was discovered under Lake Edward located on Mount Virunga, the very place that Diane Fossey had sought to protect and the home of the mountain gorillas. Because of competition over oil interests, instability has returned once again to the Congo. History is something I think that people need to understand before they plan to travel to a foreign country to pursue their own projects and agendas, as good a work as they may be providing. I think when we endeavor to help a population outside of our own, whether that be in foreign lands, in the inner cities, or even with those who don't hold the same religious beliefs as we do, etc., we should first seek to view things as much as possible through their eyes, beliefs, attitudes, and customs. Otherwise, we may also come across as bullying and disrespectful, and not truly out for others' best interests, but to further our agenda that they may not have signed off on. I think this may be the trap Diane fell into, and because she worked so hard and wanted to make a positive impact for the gorillas, only to see it begin to crumble around her, she became even more frustrated and unhappy. This, in turn, caused her to use threats and intimidation to try and get what she felt she needed from those in power. This may have made her some powerful enemies and sealed her fate. The biggest shame of it all is that I believe she actually had the same goal as a national park director and the park rangers all along. The problem was she wanted to dictate how they carried out their job, but their tactics were different than hers, 
and they began to resent that Diane was portraying them as uncaring and maybe even corrupt. If she had worked with them instead of against them, I think she might have been more successful. Perhaps. It's just speculation on my part. But I think that the best proof of this may be that, for many years now, the park rangers in the Virunga National Park are wholly dedicated today to protecting the mountain gorillas and other wildlife. There are dozens of rangers that patrol the park, seeking out, arresting, and prosecuting poachers. It is a very dangerous job, and over 100 to date have been killed while performing this job. If you want to see the work they're doing today, I recommend a Netflix documentary titled Virunga. It is the film that was released in 2014. There's another one with almost the same name, so make sure to look for the one that's simply titled Virunga. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Thanks for indulging my opinion. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Links to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon pages are listed in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. 